Well, good morning. Please open up in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and as you were doing so, I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. We only have a couple of more weeks in our current sermon series through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and this morning we're going to find ourselves in verses 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Let me read God's word in your hearing, and as I do, let me remind you of the warning that Scripture itself gives, that we are not to be hearers only, but doers of the word. This is what God's word says to us, Ephesians 6, verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the blessings birthed from the womb of the Protestant Reformation is what historians refer to as the Protestant work ethic. And this included, among other things, a renewed emphasis upon one's calling or vocation. And how that vocation, it could be and it should be done to the glory of God. But can we be honest and just acknowledge that, that we don't really speak that way anymore, do we? we? We don't think in terms of vocation, but work. My job. The eight to five. And I also suspect that we rarely think of our vocation in terms of the glory of God. Instead, we work because we have to. Work in our culture is a necessary evil. And then, if we want to glorify God, well, we go to church, right? I think there is in a lot of our minds something of a, of a secular, sacred divide. We, we've got sort of these, this dichotomy going on in the way that we view the world. We, we've got the physical stuff, and then we've got the spiritual stuff. And so it goes like this. In terms of the physical stuff, you've got changing diapers or changing spark plugs. You've got fixing meals or fixing computers. You've got repairing clothes, and you've got repairing roofs. And again, that's all the physical stuff. It just sort of is what it is. You just sort of have to do it to, to get on in life. But then you have like the good stuff, and that's the spiritual stuff. So you've got pastors and preaching, you've got church and communion, you've got sermons and Bible study, you've got prayer and fellowship, you've got evangelism and discipleship. And again, that's like the good stuff. And we sort of, 
live, I think, as if these two, again, the physical and the spiritual, the, the secular and the sacred, we sort of live as if these two are sort of hermetically sealed off from one another. In our minds, if I can put it this way, there tends to be a massive gulf that exists between, say, Sunday and Monday. But our Protestant forefathers, they had a much more holistic view of the world. And again, this is why they stressed vocation. From the pastor to the baker. From the homemaker to the shoemaker. These were all dignified callings. Ones in which God was to be glorified by the labor performed. And so Luther, he went so far as to argue that our various vocations, they are what he called masks. Masks that God wears to accomplish his purposes in the world. Listen to Luther. He says this, what is our work in field and garden? In town and house, in battling and ruling to God, but the work of children through which he bestows his gifts on the land, in the house, and everywhere. And then Luther says this, our works are God's masks behind which he remains hidden, although he does all things. Luther's point well, the bread in your pantry does not fall from heaven as if it is manna, right? So from those who construct the oven that it is baked in to the truck driver who delivers it to yokes, from the Sarah Lee employee who stocks the shelves to the person who rings you up and puts it in the bag for you, these are in your pantry. The point is this, church. God has something to say about work. Or, to ratchet things up even a bit more, living in light of the gospel will come to effect tomorrow morning. Now, as we are thinking God's thoughts after him, and as we are thinking about how our various vocations relate, I want to remind you once again of the context. As we quickly come to the close of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he's been teaching us what it looks like to be, Ephesians 5.18, filled with the Spirit. Now, so often today, you'll hear of Spirit-filled Christians. And usually, and unfortunately, that sort of idea is associated with all manner of silliness, irreverence, and in some cases, even blasphemy. But Scripture, as always, is our corrective. The compass of God's Word always points true north, lest we get lost. And so what we've been seeing the last few weeks is that to be filled with the Spirit of God, it includes that you and I, Ephesians 5.21 now, will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, at this point, you might want to raise your hand and ask a question. You might say, Paul, 
What does this submitting to one another look like? How does this get worked out in real life? And the apostle is glad that you asked. Because he answers. In Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, we learn that wives are to submit to their husbands. Last week, we saw in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, children are to obey their parents. And now this week, we will see in verses 5 through 9 that employees are to obey their bosses. And all of this, this submitting and this obeying, it is flesh on the bones of the gospel. In other words, it is you and I as Christians living out and living in light of the gospel. Now, to be fair, that's not exactly what the text says. More specifically, it doesn't mention employees and bosses, does it? In actuality, the two groups that you have in verses 5 through 9, in verse 5 you have bond servants, and then in verse 9 you have masters. So what am I trying to pull here? Well, the text does say that. In fact, the more literal rendering of verse 5's bond servants is slaves. And it's at that juncture that we immediately face a problem, right? Because given our nation's history, we can generally only hear that word slaves in one way. It's like a, like a smoke alarm going off in our ears, right? It sort of assaults our senses. But, and this is so important to understand, the slavery of the first century Roman Empire, it was not, I repeat, not like the slavery of 19th century America. The civil war that was fought on our land, when it came to slavery, it was primarily a slavery that revolved around the color of one's skin, and it was a slavery that was primarily lifelong. But neither were the case in Paul's day. It was actually altogether different. Let me put it to you this way. During the writing of the New Testament, it is estimated that there were over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Or to put that into perspective, nearly one-third of all people were slaves. It's certainly been the case in larger metropolitan cities like Ephesus. But again... These slaves or bond servants, it was not like the chattel slavery that we tend to think of. Sure, in Ephesus, slaves did do menial work, but slaves also did pretty much every kind of work. So this is what we know. Some slaves were clerks, cashiers, bookkeepers. Other slaves were teachers, doctors, and administrators. It wasn't uncommon for slaves in the ancient world to be educated more than their owners were. These same slaves, they owned property. Ironically enough, these slaves, they quite often owned slaves of their own. They also saved the money that they earned to purchase their freedom, which might be a shock to many of us 
Many of the slaves in the Roman Empire, they paid for their freedom before they reached the age of 30. So I want to reiterate, there was no class or ethnicity, or if you want to use a word that I hate, race. None of that was targeted. If you were walking down the street, you would not be able to tell a slave from a free person simply by their outward appearance or the color of their skin. On top of that, slaves had all kinds of upward mobility, which means that you would find slaves in all but the highest of economic and social strata. And don't misunderstand me, I'm, I'm not suggesting that to be a slave or to be a bondservant in the first century was like a vacation. I'm not saying it was a cush gig. But what I am saying is that it wasn't what we are accustomed to think of when we hear the word slavery. Some slaves had it pretty good. Some slaves had it pretty bad. But at a fundamental level, it was not on par with our nation's dark past. So with that way too brief historical sketch, that's why I'm treating this section as employees and bosses. I'm doing that because while there is not a one-to-one correlation, in a lot of ways, it is the closest parallel that we have in our culture. Employees are like bond servants, and employers are like masters. And the point that I want you to see is that God has something to say to both of these. So when it comes to bond servants, or again, workers or employees, this is God's word to them. Verse 5, God says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. So hang with me for a second. Just remember the structure that we've been seeing the last few weeks. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your husbands. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents. Here, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Church, this is how the submitting to one another of Ephesians 5.21, this is how it all gets worked out. To which you say, well, fair enough. But what does this look like on a Monday morning? Glad you asked. Let me give you four words. We ought to labor respectfully, sincerely, willingly, and expectantly. Let's see how Scripture directs us. First, we ought to labor respectfully. Verse 5 again. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. What does it say? With fear and trembling. Christian, your boss is not just another one of the guys. He's your boss. And he's been put there by God. Remember, all authority is established by God because God is the ultimate authority. And in his wisdom and in his sovereignty and in his providence, he gives a measure of authority to others. And that includes your boss or your manager or your supervisor. And so the exhortation to you is this. 
You ought to have an attitude of reverence and respect for your boss because of his position, because, again, of his delegated authority. We're also told, second word, to labor sincerely. And I'm getting that from the middle of verse 5. Stay with me. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Notice the connection that Paul is making. The the obedience required to your boss, it ought to spring from the same heart that renders obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that it ought to be a real, genuine, sincere obedience. Not a, a fake, sort of plastic one. The the idea of a sincere heart, it signifies integrity and a purity of motive. The point is, Christian, there ought to be nothing duplicitous about this. Now, lest there be any doubt, Paul elaborates in verse 6. He says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. We all get what Paul means there by eye service, right? It's the idea of doing what the boss says only when the boss is looking. You might think of one of those classes that gyms offer. You ever do one of those things? You sign up for it, you show up, you get there, and up front in the class is this like physical specimen of human strength, like carved out of a mountain or something, and then there's you. And about halfway through the class, as the, the drill instructor, I'm sorry, as the instructor is, is hollering at everyone to, to keep doing push-ups, you keep doing those push-ups just so long as he's looking your way. You're pumping him out. You're pumping him out. And as soon as he turns his head, what's the temptation? To sort of hold fixed. And you wonder about all of your life decisions that have led to this point. Too many Christians do that with their vocation. They follow directions and they do what they are told when the boss is looking over their shoulder. But when he's not around, you sort of do your own thing. Well, the Holy Spirit is telling us through the pen of Paul, that ought not to be the case. Christian employee, you must see that when you are obeying your boss, you are actually, end of verse 6 now, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, when you obey your earthly boss sincerely, you are serving the big boss. You're serving God himself. Let me give you a third word to instruct us in our labors. It's the word willingly. Willingly, verse 7 Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Let me put it to you this way. There is a way to work and then there is a way to work, right? When the boss says, do this task, you you can do the task or you can do the task while sort of complaining and, and giving lip and kicking your feet. And either way, you might say, well, hey, the the task got done. What does it matter? Here's the punchline, though. Just because the task gets done, that does not mean that you have done your job. 
And we say that because according to Scripture, you were to do your job, verse 7, by rendering service with a good will. That is to say, Christian, you are supposed to have a a good attitude. You're supposed to have a a willing heart in this work. And, And if that was to be true of actual slaves in the first century empire, well, how much more should it be true of you and I in our various callings? Let's lead this to our fourth word. We've seen how Christians ought to labor respectfully, sincerely, and willingly. Paul then adds, expectantly. Put your eyes on verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. You, You all labor in your vocation expectantly, do you not? And by that I mean you sort of expect every two weeks to get a paycheck, right? And and most of us, if any of us, would actually do our various jobs if we didn't get paid. Well, I want you to notice that, that Scripture motivates us to obey our earthly masters along these similar lines, doesn't he? As you labor respectfully and sincerely and willingly know this, God promises to reward you. He promised to reward you. you I, I get it. You might work hard and your boss could be oblivious to the whole thing. Or worse than that, you might work really hard and your boss despises you. Why? Well, because you make him look bad. But regardless of the circumstances, what God's word is telling us is that your labor will not, uh, it will not escape the gaze of your heavenly master. And on that last day, your labor will be rewarded. So Christian, work hard. Labor knowing that ultimately you labor for the Lord. And God is not stingy when it comes to compensation. But Paul's not done. Because he also has words for masters, too. And if you think about it, this is actually pretty remarkable. Paul doesn't just address the bondservants, but it cuts both ways. Here's what I mean. And by now, we should see something of the, of the rhythm. Us being transformed by the gospel, it will come to affect us regardless of our station in life. So again, as we've seen for the last couple of weeks, wives ought to submit to their husbands, but also, and here it cuts both ways, husbands ought to love their wives. Children, yes, are called upon to obey their parents, but fathers, you must not provoke your children and you must bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so we see the same pattern here that cuts both ways. Yes, bondservants, you are to obey your earthly masters. But hold on, masters, because God's word has something to say to you as well. You see, you see the pattern here? So what is God's word to masters or, or bosses? And again, Scripture gives us four words. First, masters should manage respectfully. I want you to look. What are the first words directed to the masters? 
And you see him there in verse 9. Scripture says, masters, do the same to them. Masters, do the same to the bondservants. Now, it's not exactly clear what precisely Paul has in mind here, but the overall thrust seems to be sort of directed towards the actions and the attitudes of the masters. Just as bond servants are to obey respectfully, so the masters are to perform their managerial duties respectfully. Kent Hughes calls this the managerial golden rule. Bosses or or owners of companies or, or supervisors, managers. God's word is telling you that you ought to treat those under you the way that you would want to be treated. Second word, they should do their work kindly. Look at what Paul says there in the middle of verse 9. He says to the masters, and stop your threatening. Stop that. It was not uncommon in the ancient world for slave owners to threaten their servants with everything from being physically beaten to even being sexually harassed. In our world, it might look more often like bosses manipulating or demeaning or or just sort of unnecessarily scolding their employees. But Scripture tells us that is not an option for the Christian boss. Instead, you ought to stop your threatening. You, You ought to treat your employees kindly. Let me give you still a third word for masters, and that's the word humbly. They should manage humbly. Why? Because the middle of verse 9, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. What's that you say? Masters are slaves too. Right? Earthly masters have a heavenly master. And earthly masters will stand before their heavenly master one day, and they will have to give an account for their lives, including not just how many songs they sung at church on Sunday, but how they treated their employees Monday. So bosses, you might have the corner office right now. You might be the big dog on campus come Monday morning. But you need to understand that you too have a boss. So discharge your duties humbly. Let me give you the fourth and final word directed to masters. It's the word fairly. Masters should perform their duties fairly. If you're following along, we're we're now coming to the end of verse 9. And that there is no partiality with him. That is to say, there's no partiality with Christ. You might be white-collar and those under you blue-collar. You might have gone to school longer or make more money or have a bigger house. But bosses and managers know this. There is no partiality with Christ. Know for certain that all that affords you social standing and advantage here and now, on that day, it will all quickly vanish. And you will stand naked before the judgment seat of Christ. The punchline? 
Well, treat those under your charge fairly. And I would just add, this is what makes things like nepotism in our day and age so ugly. And and not only is it ugly, but it's unjust. And not only is it ugly and unjust, it's also just completely demoralizing to the company or to the crew, right? And that's because at heart, nepotism is nothing less than the sin of showing partiality. And unfortunately, bosses do this stuff all the time, right? This is why the boss's nephew has a corner office, even though he has about three days of experience. Furthermore, the sin of partiality is also what makes buzzwords like equity and inclusion and even affirmative action so unjust. Let me explain. When all of a sudden institutions and corporations are making decisions not on the basis of the character or the caliber of certain individuals, but on other things, that's just a new and modern way of showing partiality. And partiality, according to God's law, is unjust. There is no partiality with Him, that is with Christ, verse 9. And therefore, again, whether you're a master, whether you're an owner, whether you're a boss, whether you're a supervisor, you should not be one who is showing partiality. Well, congregation... We've heard something of God's word this morning to bond servants and masters. What I want to do with the remaining couple of minutes that we have together in God's word is highlight some principles for all of us. Maybe we could ask it this way. Come Monday morning, how ought we to live? So let me offer you five principles, five truths that we would do well to meditate on and lean into. Four starters. Come Monday morning, we need to see that work is a gift. Tomorrow, when that alarm clock goes off, it's not a bad thing. Work is good. Work is a gift that comes to us from the hand of our Father. Our Father, remember, who Himself works. Now, of course, the fall of humanity into sin has greatly affected work. We know that. In fact, one of the curses placed upon the man was what? By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So I'm not suggesting for a moment that work isn't tough. It is. And that is because labor has been cursed because of sin. But I want you to notice this. While labor was cursed in Genesis 3... Labor was not instituted in Genesis 3. Work goes back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Be fruitful, multiply, exercise dominion, tend the garden. That's all good. That's all pre-fall. So sure, work is harder now. It will involve blood and sweat and tears, the kind that Adam and Eve knew nothing of. But Christians, just like these other things that God gives us pre-fall, things, for example, like marriage and like the Sabbath, 
These are good gifts, even in our fallen world. And we ought to thank God for the gift of labor. We ought to thank our Father for our various vocations. Second principle come Monday morning. Your vocation is honorable and dignified. Now, I don't know what your day looks like tomorrow. You might do landscaping or drive truck. You might be a lawyer or a teacher. Perhaps you write code or or dig trenches or homeschool or stock shelves. I don't know. But I do know that all of this and countless other callings, they are all honorable and dignified. Again, this is what the reformers helped us to see. There was a time, you have to understand, when the only real vocations were that of priest or pastor, or so it was thought. If you weren't doing like the spiritual stuff, then it was sort of just thought that you were kind of wasting your life. Not so. Again, this unhealthy separation of of secular and sacred must be eradicated. Christian, if you wake up tomorrow and you seek to provide for your family and to do good to your neighbor and to honor Christ in whatever your vocation is tomorrow, assuming it's lawful, then it is honorable and dignified. And you should know that as you pursue it and as you give yourself to it, you are not wasting your life. Not at all. Third principle. Christ is Lord even over Monday mornings. I say that for two reasons. On the one hand, Christ has something to say to us, doesn't he? Both bondservants and masters need to listen up. Why? Well, because Christ is the ultimate boss. He is Lord, not just over our worship gathering on Sunday mornings, and not just over your private devotions on Sunday evenings, but he is Lord over your vocations come Monday morning. We have to see that the lordship of Christ extends to all of life. And the other reason we must see the lordship of Christ, even for Monday mornings, is because how Christ-centered Paul's idea of vocation is here. Don't miss this. Bond servants, you are to obey your masters respectfully and sincerely, end of verse 5, as you would Christ. Bond servants are ultimately bond servants of Christ, verse 6. You were to work willingly, verse 7, as to the Lord. That is to say, as to Christ. And bond servants, you ought to labor expectantly, for Christ promises that you will, verse, nine, uh, verse 8 rather, receive back from his hand, or Christ's hand. And of course, this all applies to masters as well. In fact, earthly masters need to remember that Christ is their heavenly master. Middle of verse 9, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven. So the point is, church, that Christ is Lord over all. He's Lord over employees and employers. He's Lord over Sunday and Monday. He's Lord over sanctuaries and cubicles. He's Lord over Bibles and he's Lord over time clocks. Christ is not just our king. Christ is the king. Let me mention now a fourth principle, and no doubt the most important. Come Monday morning, 
the Lord Jesus Christ is both bondservant and master par excellence. Think about this with me. As a bondservant, did not Christ discharge all of his duties perfectly? Think about it. Did he not respect and honor his father while he was on earth, doing all the work that his father sent him to do? More than that, we know that Christ sincerely obeyed from the heart. In fact, we know that Christ sincerely from the heart obeyed the entirety of God's law, that same law that each and every one of us have broken and will continue to break. Christ obeyed it sincerely. He also willingly became incarnate for us. But not just incarnate, but but he also willingly became incarnate and, and submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, again, for our sin. And then Christ does all of this expectantly, doesn't he? He looks forward to his resurrection and his ascension where the Lord Jesus Christ is granted a crown, a thorn, a a, a throne, and a kingdom. Then as master, he also does everything perfectly there. Think about it. As our master, Christ treats us with great respect and dignity. Christ never calls you or I to do something that he first hasn't done. He also treats us with exceeding kindness. Never threatening us, never berating us. How could he? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's also a humble and generous master. For Christ pours out grace upon grace to us. Grace, remember, that was bought and paid for in his very death. And then, Christ treats us all together fairly. As our elder brother and our Savior, he loves each and every one of us. He's committed to each and every one of us. There's no favoritism. There's no partiality in Christ. He loves his bride. Do, do you see, church, how Christ is the perfect bond servant and master? How he fulfills, how he fulfills and models for us This idea of vocation that we all, if we're honest, tend to struggle with quite a bit. So Christian, here's my exhortation to you this morning. You must learn to do two seemingly contradictory things tomorrow when the alarm goes off. You must labor for the Lord and you must rest in the Lord. 
You must labor to do the work that God has called you to do because that is what God has called you to do. And you must rest in the Lord knowing that no matter how well or how unwell you perform your task tomorrow, you stand forgiven in God's sight because of he who has labored in your stead. Labor for and rest in. Let me give you now the fifth and final principle. We are to live for the glory of God including Monday mornings. One of the realities of this latter half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, by that I mean chapters 4, 5, and 6, is how, dare I say, practical it all is. From marriage to family to the office, we are to be those who are living in light of the gospel. Let me go at it from a slightly different direction. Let's just begin with answering sort of a basic question. What is a disciple? This is what Jesus does, right? He calls people to be his disciples. Well, what is a disciple? Well, a disciple is one whose entire life is being transformed by the gospel, with the emphasis being upon entire life, not portions, not little sort of silos quarantined off. No, all of Christ for all of life. So think, for example, of what Paul would tell the Corinthians. He says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Or given our context this morning, we might tweak that statement just a little bit. Whether you are at church or at the office, do all for the glory of God. So tomorrow, if you are cooking a meal, do it for the glory of God. If you are a teacher, educate for the glory of God. If you are a nurse, treat patients for the glory of God. If you are in retail or outside sales, if you are a mechanic or a garbage man, whether you are doing laundry tomorrow or delivering mail, do all for the glory of God. That is your calling, Christian. So, tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off, Hit snooze, but only once, and then get up and get to work. And I realize that, that that might be in an office or in a truck. It might be at home if you work remotely, or you might be a homemaker. The point is, we are going to return tomorrow, so many of us, not to a job, but our calling, our vocation. And as you do, labor for the Lord. Rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to glorify Him in all that you do. Join with me in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, He who has labored on our behalf. He who has truly worked and done all that he was supposed to do. And it is in him that we this morning come to you. We come in his name. We come in his righteousness. We come in his power. And we pray for the grace of your spirit to help us. To help us not just as we gather here each and every Lord's Day to, to worship and to receive the means of grace that you have for us. We, we, we do need you for that. But tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, we, we equally need you. We pray for the grace of your Spirit, whether we are uh, employees or employers, or whether we are working out of the home or whether we are working in the home. 
We pray that your gospel would come to affect every nook and cranny of the way that we live our lives. But again, we need the help of your spirit. So we pray, Father, come and fill us with your spirit in the name of Christ, that we might be the men and women that you've called us to be. All of God's people said, Amen.